This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, August 11th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. In his new book, The Soul of the First Amendment, attorney Floyd Abrams examines the many facets of the First Amendment and how it's been applied by courts. We discussed campaign finance and the growing fights on college campuses over free expression. Basically, uh, it's anti-sensorial. It's the government can't uh, uh, keep people from speaking can't force them to speak, can't punish them for their speech, uh, and the overwhelming amount of circumstances uh, in which speakers uh, or writers uh, uh, are potentially challenged. Where does the government force people to speak? Uh, Most of the totalitarian countries of the world uh, in, in the United States, is, is there other examples where the, the government forces people to speak? Well, we've had cases in the courts uh, in which uh, uh, compulsory responses, for example, and, and the Tornillo case back in the 1970s, Florida passed a law uh, which basically said if you have a, if you write an article uh, criticizing a candidate, you have to let the candidate answer the article. Uh, uh, that, that would be an example of the newspaper being forced to speak uh, uh, under the Fairness Doctrine, as it had existed. Uh, broadcasters were required to put on the supposed other side when they had people on speaking about matters uh, of, of uh, public interest and controversy. I mean, there are a number of examples like that. In the the Citizens United case, obviously a very uh, controversial case, the uh, five to four decision uh, in the Citizens United case was uh, is the hotly contested part. But there was an eight to one decision there on the this idea of disclosure. Yes. What, what do you feel about the idea of disclosure with respect to independent political speech? Uh, let me say first, as, as a matter of full disclosure, that I am currently representing the governor of the state of New York and defending a statute uh, which does have a requirement of public disclosure of the name of large donors in certain situations. Uh, that said, uh, I think there are, there are sort of two aspects to the disclosure issue uh, of a broader nature than that. One, as a, as a practical matter, uh, the price tag of uh, virtually unlimited ability to uh, speak and to spend money on speech has been public disclosure of uh, who's uh, coming out with large sums of money to facilitate or allow the speech to occur. Uh, I, I think that sort of almost bargain that the Supreme Court has laid out uh, is one which uh, I find acceptable. Uh, Beyond that, I happen to think that more disclosure about who is actually speaking uh, serves a very significant First Amendment function uh, of letting the public know uh, who, who the speech is really on behalf of. Now, there are circumstances where compulsory uh, disclosure would subject individuals or organizations to 
sanctions, uh, uh, potential chilling effect may be worse. And there, uh, as in the old NAACP case, where the disclosure would be who's a member of the NAACP in segregationist Mississippi, uh, then the, the, the simple association of the name with the NAACP uh, would be threatening to First Amendment and other interests. But as a general proposition, I think uh, disclosure of uh, people and institutions that make large donations to campaigns and the political process is uh, consistent with the First Amendment. Yeah, on this issue of chilling effects, those are notoriously difficult to measure. How do we know that the regime itself would not create that kind of effect, a regulatory regime that mandated this kind of disclosure? I, I don't think you can be sure of that. But uh, I mean, in most situations, one would have a pretty good idea. It, I mean, more likely than not, it would be, you know, taking unpopular positions on on uh, the sort of issues that that lead to uh, uh, shunning or worse uh, by by others uh, if they know uh, you know who you're who you're for etc uh, or or what what you're for or what you're against but uh, I, I generally share the view on this with Justice Scalia who in one of the cases said that uh, he, he thinks that th- th- this is part of uh, li- living in a vibrant democracy, that you ought to be prepared to say what, what you believe uh, and therefore why you're, why in that case, why you're signing a document trying to put something on a ballot or in other cases, uh, wh- why you're spending a whole lot of money uh, to uh, try to get some uh, referenda uh, accepted, or maybe even who to vote for. What do you see as some of the big threats to free speech today in the United States? Uh, the number one one, I think, on a on a federal scale, is the uh, Espionage Act, which is phrased very broadly, which was written a hundred years ago, literally a hundred years ago, during World War One, uh, and uh, the language of which could be used to uh, threaten, if not worse, uh, uh, elements of journalism uh, in America where people uh, gather information from individuals with uh, access to it who are not allowed to give it to them and do, and do provide it, whether in writing or, or orally. Uh, uh, there are a series of sections uh, of the Espionage Act which read broadly at least, uh, could imperil a good deal of the most important journalism that we have about national security and intelligence issues. This isn't necessarily among reporters, but there are people who believe that, well, reporters are protected from violations of law for just publishing classified material, but that's not really true, is it? That's not necessarily true. Uh, Certainly the uh, lawyers would argue uh, lawyers like me would argue that a reporter who does nothing more than to publish classified material should not be held criminally liable for doing so, uh, and would argue as well that uh, uh, there has to be imported into that statute to make it constitutional 
some sort of uh, mens rea, we call it, or bad motive, such as uh, hurting the United States or helping some country at the expense of the United States. Now, that language does appear in certain sections, but not all of the Espionage Act, uh, and uh, uh, where I think a lot of the argument will be is uh, where it is not present is the statute uh, unconstitutionally overbroad in basically roping in a journalist who, who has information somebody was not authorized to give, and let's say classified information, uh, which in the language of the statute, quote, relates to the national defense, unquote. Uh, and, uh, you know, so we could, we could have a major, major confrontation uh, uh, quite, quite possibly with this administration uh, 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 with respect to that portion of uh, Section 793 of the Espionage Law. Anything else? Confidential sources, uh, leak investigations, uh, either conducted in good faith, but which nonetheless put journalists in a position of uh, either uh, breaking their word and therefore their credibility with sources in the future, uh, or alternatively, leak investigations uh, uh, which are set into motion for the purpose of frustrating journalists and or uh, limiting their ability to function. What about college campuses? I feel like public universities have, uh, out of perhaps fear of litigation, have been uh, less than friendly to a lot of people who have been trying to exercise their right to speak I agree. Uh, in a public setting. Yes, I, I agree with that. I, I gave a, a speech at Temple University, uh, I think, uh, two years ago, which I said uh, that I thought that the, the single greatest ongoing threat to the First Amendment then was the uh, limitations uh, uh, on speech and intrusions into speech and stifling of speech uh, on campus. And uh, that remains uh, a, a very serious uh, ongoing problem. Um, and uh, I don't see any short-term uh, solution to it. Uh, uh, obviously, the, the situations only arise as a pure legal matter with respect to public universities, uh, like uh, Berkeley, uh, for example, but even uh, private colleges that are not subject to the First Amendment have ongoing issues about uh, the invitations to speakers, the accommodations in terms of protections for speakers, and, and even more for the people that want to hear them. Uh, so th those are big problems, uh, and th th they're not going away soon. How much of that do you think is driven by federal regulation, and how much of it is just uh, a concern about liability, and how much of it is uh, actual animosity toward those messages? I, I think most of all it, uh, 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 it's a combination of animosity to the uh, messages, uh, uh, unwillingness to... Uh, be seen to be on the wrong side of issues that uh, students care a lot about and, and might uh, uh, take issue with, uh, sometimes inappropriately and always uncomfortably from the point of view of university administrations. So 
you know, the easy way out used to be to just say no uh, and to try to keep speakers from coming or uh, cancel invitations uh, as a way of uh, avoiding uh, conflict. But uh, there is a new and I think welcome militancy uh, on the part of uh, uh, the students who want to invite uh, speakers who may say things which are discomforting to others, uh, outside groups uh, that are the ones that uh, tend to be the ones invited and to be most controversial. Uh, these days, mostly on the right, uh, formally uh, more on the left, but, but, but these days generally uh, individuals uh, from the right or who have written things which are offensive to generally held views on, on campuses in America. Lloyd Abrams is author of The Soul of the First Amendment. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 